Welcome to the Road to Life Church podcast. Here with our pastor, Micah Shepline, you will be inspired through the Word of God. For more information, please visit roadtolifechurch.com. So today we're going to be talking about something, and I'm calling it Better Not Call Saul. Now, if you are, I'm not endorsing TV shows. However, I do enjoy a funny TV show, and there is a TV show called uh, Better Call Saul, and it's a it's a it's a uh, a knockoff of a show that was popular a few years ago called, called Breaking Bad. But in it, essentially, Saul is this lawyer that you essentially call when you are just up a creek with no paddle, and he's kind of a slimy dude, uh, but he always figures out a way to get you out. But the problem is, is he gets you out in unconventional ways and ways that probably aren't the best for you but you know anyway so but I was thinking specifically this week I have been um, and today we're kind of going to be sitting in it for a little bit in first Samuel I've been working through first Samuel for really the past few weeks and as I've been working through it Saul is this guy that is just keeps popping up to me he keeps popping up, and he's popping up in ways that a lot of us, if you know the Bible, you're like, oh, Saul, terrible king, like, obviously, you know, don't be like Saul. But we're not going to talk about that today, and actually, what we are going to talk about, though, is his beginning stages, and really not a ton about the end, because in all honesty, you find out a lot about Saul and how he's going to end based off of how he begins. And, and this is what I want to talk about today, is I feel like in the church, and in spirituality sometimes, what happens is, is we come to God, and in the beginning, if we don't change how we function, if we don't change how we think, if we don't change how we live, then I'll be honest, you can predict what will happen in your faith. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the times what happens is, is we come in and really, if, if I'm honest with you today, I'm going to be talking about defeated mindsets. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the times it is just so easy to live in this place of defeat, live in this place of, well, it's never going to get better. Well, I'm never going to get over this. Well, I'm going through this season and it's never going to end. And, and what I'm talking about today is how I feel like a lot of the times when we go through this, it's, it's a difficult season that we turn into one that lasts forever that we really never get out of. And really for us, even as a church, as we've been grieving a loss of, 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 of a really family here and somebody who was a part of our community for years and somebody that we all loved is that it, it's so easy to just feel defeated when you have loss. It's so easy to feel defeated when you have unmet expectations. It's so easy to feel defeated when your health isn't going the way that you want it to go. It's so easy to feel defeated when your kids aren't progressing how you want, your marriage isn't going the way you want it to. And then all of a sudden, because we live in this defeated reality, it progresses to a place of which we never actually live in the fullness of God. We, we claim the victory but live in defeat. And I think this is so interesting because what you see is, is that I will be honest, most of the time what I would classify as people who live in this reality is when we feel like we've lost so much or been through so much that it's, it's too hard to give control back to him. I'd rather just control the little things that I have so there's some form of certainty. So there's some form of cohesiveness even though it's uncohesive, even though it's up and down, even though it's all around, even though it's volatile. 
And I want to encourage you today that living a lifestyle that's, that's defeated within the reality of following God, where we're saying, God, I want everything you have, but I don't actually believe that you can do all that you've said, is truly a place where we will leave frustrated, we will leave empty, and we will leave more broken than we even came to him because we'll have these unrealistic expectations rather than an re- underlying bedrock of trust of God. Man, I feel defeated, but I know you've given me victory. I feel broken, but I know that you can make me whole. I feel empty, but I know you're the one who can fill me. I feel uncertain, but I know I can be certain on the goodness of you, the love of you. And all these words can seem so empty when you're at rock bottom. And I'm not going to be the person who tells you these words so that you can project the pain because I won't be able to carry it. Only Jesus can carry the things that we've been through. And the only way, in my opinion, we can get through those things is when we actually apply the biblical and practical wisdom of what he's given us so we can go forward in life. So fun story to tie this all together. I know shifting lanes quickly here, but um, how many of us remember when D-Box came out? Anybody, right? D-Box is the movie theater like seats that moved. Um, yeah, all of us have did it once, don't lie, right? I, I, I remember when D-Box came out, and it was like this hyped thing for like six months leading out, and I, I, was, a, I was a movie buff, I still am a movie buff, don't judge me. Anyway, and, and so uh, I remember when D-Box came out, and if you remember D-Box, I remember obviously it was like almost three times more the price, but you're like, but I'll feel the movie, like you'd sit there and you're jostling and turning and you know, you're like, it's like kind of a roller coaster and you kind of need to see a chiropractor after, but whatever, right? I remember I, D-Box was like, it was, it was supposed to be this incredible experience and then after like a year, those two rows, nobody ever sat in them. And now that they got recliners, it's like, what, who even thought of D-Box? Like recliners should have been a hundred years ago. How many of us know a good recliner in a movie theater is like, Hallelujah. <laughs> turn the phone off and thank you God. Um, But D-Box is funny though because if you remember D-Box when it came out, you could turn up the settings. So when you sat down, you could turn it up to the max level of effect. Meaning that for me, I think the first one I saw was like one of the Fast and the Furious, like two out of like 26 now, whatever it is. And I remember we're like sitting there and we're pulsating and vibing and all that and it's great. But I found out early on though, what was funny is that I found out you could turn up and down the settings. And (laughs) this is terrible, but I'm with a friend and I realized I could turn down his seat. (laughs) And, and, And what this means is, is that it was in the beginning. It was hilarious because we he'd, we'd be watching the movie and it'd get intense, and the whole row is shaking but him. And he'd look, and he'd be looking around like, because he paid three times more money for a seat. He'd look around and be like, "Why is my seat not shaking? Like, what is going on?" He'd look, then he'd realize like, "Oh, dang!" I, and he wasn't thinking me because I mean, you had to lean and like you know. And so he'd turn it back up all the way. He'd be back, and then he'd be back in it. We're all together. And then what I would do is I'd wait for a quiet part, and then I'd just. <laughs> and then we'd be right back in it. He'd be, we're all shaking it. So he'd look around like, who is turning off my, and finally he learns. He's like, Micah is turning off my D-box. And what's funny is, is that after two or three times, I'm not going to lie, he just left it off the rest of the time. It was just off. 
He was just so done fighting the battle of me turn t- it turning up, me turning it down. him turn- So the whole row, I-, I wish you could have a video of it. It's like people who pay $30 for a ticket and then don't enjoy any of it, right? It's like everybody else in the theater, you could look at the row like vibing and moving and then one chair, just <laughs> nothing. And, but the reason I tell you that, I think, is a lot of the times what we realize is that when we live in a defeated mindset, what we're really doing is we're living in less than what God has purchased for us. Not recognizing that we're not living the full effect. We're not understanding everything that we fully could be present for. Everything that God really could be doing because we're so busy and stuck in this place of defeat. That we're wanting to watch the story of God unfold in our lives, but we really don't want to interact with it. We really don't want to play a part in it. We really don't actually want to be there. And what I'm trying to get to today, and and I think this is uh, something that I feel like is so hard in the church, is that, you know, there are no words humans can use sometimes when people are going through things that just make it better. And I'm not sitting here and saying that. But what I am saying today is that we have to find a way to continue to move forward with God. And man, that is a tough thing to admit as somebody who has been through something and, and as, or as somebody who's been through things and even somebody who's going through things here at our church. It is tough to say that. But I'm going to choose to live in victory. And so what I want to do today is I want to focus on um, Saul's story. And before I do, I'm going to try and do this because I feel like a lot of people um, typically come to me after services, and, or not a lot, but some people. And so there's a book actually that's really good about this. It's called Get Out of Your Own Head. It's by an author named Jeannie Allen. Um, it was a really, really good book, and essentially it talks about the battle of the mind in terms of overcoming things. And wow, that is a, I don't know what that was. Okay. There it goes. It's okay. Don't worry. Don't be distracted. It'll land on your forehead. Um, but, uh, but, but really, this book is an incredible book just based off of um, somebody who's really been through a lot, but ultimately from that place is speaking in a way of like how to get through things that really weigh you down. So it's called Get Out of Your Own Head by Jeannie Allen. But before I do, I, I, but before we kind of get in, I kind of want to give backstory about Saul. So what happens is, is If you know anything about the Old Testament, I'm going to give you about a 30-second condensed version of how we got to Saul's story. Okay, so the the condensed version is this, right? We've got Adam and Eve. They start, they fail, they fall. Things don't end up going good, and then sin enters. Then what happens is is that God resets kind of everything with Noah, and he resets kind of the, the Abrahamic covenant by essentially choosing a people that he was going to impart covenant relationship to. And as he does that, right, we go forward into a place where the Israelites really are birthed from Abraham's line. And in doing that, God is essentially kind of their king. He's their, their reigning authority. But then what happens is, is they move into the promised land which God trusts them and as they're in the promised land they look around and they say all these Canaanites and people have kings we don't really have a king and God's like well I've given you judges I've given you prophets and essentially they're like we want a king and so what God does is he says okay well I'm going to give you a king that's fine if you want a king and I'm not the king we'll give you one so this is where it picks up where Samuel the prophet in that time who has been you know, de facto ruling um, the land, he steps up and he says, okay, 
you guys want a king. That's fine. God said he'll give you a king. And actually Samuel like gives him a speech. He's like, you guys are idiots. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your money. Like Samuel's like looking at him like, God's going to give you what you want, but y'all are stupid. Like, I know God, and Samuel, if you know anything about Samuel, Samuel is the godliest man on the face of the planet at that time. And he's looking at him, and he's saying, you guys are dumb. You want a king? You got God. And, you got, and he's like, you don't have me. I'm not your king. I literally listen to God. I tell you directly what he says. You only want a king because you're looking around at everybody else and what they have, and you think, oh, that should be successful for me. So he goes, you know what? We'll give you one, but it's not going to be what you want. You're not going to like it. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be rosy, but whatever. And naturally, if you know anything about this story, is that God redeems kingship through David and David's line. But then guess what? It reverts back to man-made authority and and following away from God. And then in doing that, there's bondage and they are enslaved to Babylon and back and forth. And here we sit. But this is really, I would say when the Israelites say we want a king, it's really the beginning of the end because God gives them a, go- a few godly ones, but for the most part, it's not good kings. But what I want to do is I want to focus because here's where it starts, right? Is it actually we are introduced to the first king of Israel as he's looking for donkeys, right? We are introduced to the very first king. His, his dad sends him out and says, hey, go look for these donkeys. We've lost them. And he's out looking, and he runs into Samuel. Now, Samuel knows he's going to be the next king. But let's focus in on a little bit of the backstory, right? It says this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, son of Zeor, son of a ton of things, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Okay, so what we can find out early is Saul is a man of wealth. Okay, so let's continue. Go- and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. So Saul is birthed into wealth, and he's a handsome young man. And let's keep going. It says this. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So what we see is we've got somebody who's wealthy, we got somebody who looks good, and we got somebody who is head and shoulders above everybody else. So this is Saul's, how Saul is seen from an external perspective, okay? He's rich, he's good looking, and he's head and shoulders above everybody else. So all the people of Israel, right, this is the very first look you have of the king. So he meets the exterior criteria. The only problem is the interior is actually the thing that guides your country, and we'll find that out in a second. It says this. 1 Samuel 9, 21, though, I'm jumping to this because I think there are things that are missed in this story, and this is why we're going to be talking about the defeated mindset today, is there are things in this story many of us don't realize happen. And this, the next two verses are those specific things, all right? So what happens is, is Samuel calls, walks right up to Saul and essentially says, I'm going to anoint you, don't worry about your donkeys, I'll take care of you, Right? I am the, and everybody knows Samuel on the face of the planet at that time. Everybody knows this is the godliest guy in all of Israel. And he has stepped up and told you you are going to be king. And listen to Saul's first response. Saul replied, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribe of Israel and my family the least of all families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? What we find out is... He's head and shoulders above, he's beautiful, he's wealthy, but in his mind, he's insignificant. He's nothing. He's the least. He's unseen. 
He's unknown. And he's got Samuel in front of him, once again, godliest man on the face of the planet at that time, looking at him saying, God has called you to be king. I am going to anoint you as king. And all he can say is, I'm the least. I'm the weakest. Now listen to this. So what happens is, is we see early on, okay, Saul's kind of, externally, he checks all the boxes. Internally, maybe he does it, but here we go. Maybe we can change that. And how do we know we can change that? I'm going to focus in. Look at, listen to these passages. 1 Samuel 10, 6 to 7. And this is Samuel speaking to Saul. It says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet, you do what your, what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So essentially, he says, this time tomorrow, you're going to go up to the temple, you're going to prophesy, and in that moment, you're going to be changed to another man. So let's add some layers here. We've got head and shoulders above, right? We've got wealthy, we've got good looking, and now we've got Samuel saying, you're going to prophesy and be changed into another man. Now we're going to take it a step further. Listen to this passage, 1 Samuel 10, verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass this day. Okay, let's add this in again, right? We're head and shoulders above. We're good looking. We're wealthy. We've been made a new man, and we've been given a new heart. I would venture to say this guy's ready to be king, right? I mean, if we're reading these scriptures, it's like, okay, like, This guy's got it externally, and Samuel essentially just prayed a prayer of change the heart, and God's changing the man, and this is a guy that should be checking all the boxes now. Like, let's go. We got a king, and we about to throw down. We gonna be good. Then it says this, right? This is what I want to focus on, because once again, we're talking about a defeated mindset, and I want us to focus in on this passage of scripture from the lens of, remember where we started. He's wealthy. He's head and shoulders above. He's good looking. He's been given a new heart. He's a new man. Now, he's being introduced to the entire kingdom. Let's find out if all, that thing, all of that is sticking. It says this, 1 Samuel 10, 20 to 24. And this is what I would classify as what not to do on your first day of being a king. Okay? It says this, that Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matriots was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Now what they're doing is they're casting lots to choose the, the king. I actually had a, a discussion with somebody about this three weeks ago because we're not going to talk about lots right now, but I actually did do a little bit of a dive on this, and it's very fascinating why they did this in the Old Testament. But essentially what's going on right now is that they believe these lots will decide the king, and in this instance, it goes exactly what's according to plan. Saul's, or Samuel's already anointed him, so they've casted these lots, and now this man who's been anointed has been chosen by lots out of all the people in the entire land, and now it's like, let's bring him forward, Right? But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. I mean, you just been, think about this, right? We are at the inauguration and it's, it's start time. And everybody's, where's the president? He's about to give the speech. And you're like, nope, he's, uh, he's in. We don't know where to find him, and then security just buzzes in. Yeah, we got some suitcases over here. Looks like he's laying in there. 
right? How many of you guys know they like come across, they're like, sorry, couldn't find the president for a second, but we found him. There was a lot of luggage over there. He was laying underneath it. Now, as a people, immediately, if I'm an Israelite, I'm like, okay, did we make a bad decision here? It's like, first off, how do you even find a pile of luggage? This is like thousands of years ago. Who carries luggage around? But second off, like, he's head and shoulders above. How did he get in there? Just crawl in there? Like, anyway, if I'm an Israelite, I'm a little bit like, this is not good. It says this. Amen. Thank you for that. Um. Verse 23, then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? <laughs> there is none like him among the people. I guarantee Saul's, or Samuel's like, I'm going to say this, God, but I don't want to. Like, there's none like him in all the people. He literally hid in baggage the first act as king. We had to drag him out from hiding in suitcases. None like him, guys. <laughs> and then all the people shouted, long live the king. So let's think about this. Which king is Saul going to become? The king that's head and shoulders above, the king that's more beautiful than anybody else, the king that's wealthy, the king that's been given a new heart, the king that God made a new man? Or is he going to be the least? Is he going to be the weakest? Is he going to be the king that hides in the baggage? Well, we know the ending of the story. He reverts back to what he was always known by rather than what God had created him to become. See, and this is what I need us to understand today, church, is that we have to get to a place where we will leave behind what we have been known for, what our identity says we are, what the world has labeled us as, and recognize that we serve a God who wants to create us into a new creation, who wants to give us a new name, who wants to give us a new way of living. But that will be our choice between those two. It will always be our choice. And what's sad is, is that you know this, is that the reality that we set our mind on of, okay, God, will we be able to move away from being somebody who just is known by all the things that they've done and all the things they've gone through and never stepped into the reality of who God's going to be. And I talked about this in our SOS, but really this comes down to this. In church today, we have a crisis because what everybody, when we come to God, we become justified through his blood. What that means is he takes you from guilty to innocent. That's right. Okay. But the next step is this. And this is where the disconnect is in ownership. The next step is sanctification. Becoming like him. Becoming as Jesus is. The process of turning your personhood into who God says Jesus was through his word and a deep devotion to changing our personhood into the likeness of Christ. Now, what a lot of people want to do is we want to come to church every day or every week and feel like when we leave, we have went from guilty to innocent. But in doing so, we are missing out on the vitality of following God because God didn't just die so you could be guilty and then innocent. He died so you could become like him. That's right. 
And there was never a time in human history before his death where there wasn't only a select few on the face of the earth that could become like him. What it was is it was the justified reasoning, which is guilty to innocent. And I pray today that we change our mindsets from, okay, I am not just living a lifestyle of every week asking God to take me from a guilty conscience, to take me from a guilty way of living, to take me from a guilty background and just make me innocent in a moment, but rather, God, thank you so much for turning my guilt into innocence, and in this place, I honor you, choose you, and will become more like you, because that's what it means to be a follower of God, not somebody who had a sentence passed that changed them, but rather somebody who has made a choice to be changed. So what I want to do is I just want to give us a quick, um, some brief things, how to overcome a mindset of defeat today. Just a couple brief things. How to overcome a mindset of defeat. The first one is this, right? Separate your past from your present. Make a decision. Now, I think the most groundbreaking moment, okay, here's what I need everybody. If you only leave with this one thought today, that's okay with me. And it's this. Right after Saul's reign, there's a man who takes over, which is King David, which if you know becomes one of, if not the, the most important person of the Old Testament. Now, what happens, though, is this, right? Let's, let's, we're going to psychoanalyze these for a second, okay? Saul's first moments as king is fearfulness. I'm going to hide in the baggage. His introduction to the nation of Israel is fear. David's introduction to the nation of Israel is faith. The very first instance of David stepping up in front of the nation is when he fights Goliath. The very first instance of Saul stepping up in front of the nation is when he hides in the baggage. What am I trying to say today? Is that I think a lot of the times what happens is, is we have to make a choice between fear and faith. And I know that sounds just so normal and so churchy and so like, duh, but that's what it came down to in leading the kingdom. That was the simplest thing, is that the, the first king of Israel, the reason he failed is because of fear. And the second king of Israel, the reason he succeeded is because of faith. I love David's story because a lot of us, what we do is we look at it and we're like, oh yeah, he killed Goliath. But not only did he kill Goliath, do you know the manner in which he killed him? Obviously, we know he had a sling and a stone, but it actually says that when he stepped forward and Goliath came out of the crowd, he didn't just walk toward him, he ran toward him. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine essentially talking trash but realizing with confidence who he was created to be, who God had in mind when, when he gave him the design to overcome this, this massive dude? But David is not this person who just walked with God and had an incredible story. You know David lost three children? Like David, you know David had his kingdom torn away from him by one of his sons? You know, David's closest counselors deserted him. You know, David at one point was so low that people were, that a guy on the shoreline was throwing rocks at him, saying, you, you're cursed. God's not with you. You're alone. See, a lot of us, what we do is we look at David and go, God, why can't I just have a David life? We look at people in the Bible like, oh, God, and we don't realize that they battled with defeat just as much as we did, but they stayed the course. 
And what it comes down to is, are we willing to run towards the things in our past and separate from them? Are we willing to separate? Because remember how David showed up? He showed up as a DoorDash driver. He's delivering cheese and bread to his brothers. And he left as a champion. Now, what do you think he could have been known by, right? And it actually says Eliab looks at him, his older brother, in the instance of when he's starting to step up, wondering about the fight. And he goes, dude, go back to the sheep. Go back to your past. Go back to what you're known for. Go back to what you're identified as. Go back to what everybody sees you as. Go back to, go back. But David knew who he was. And see, a lot of us, what people try to do is they try to go back to who you are. Go back to how you lived. Go back to those bad decisions. Go back to those bad relationships. Go back to that stereotype. Go back to your nine to five. Go back to your family. And, and you, don't, you know, you're so busy. You don't really need God or you don't really have time or you don't have the margins or you, know, you don't have the calling or you don't have the style or you don't have the, the skill. And Do you just have the willingness? Because willingness is just us saying, God, I will separate my past from my present and trust you with all three, including my future. I think it's so interesting that the first king of Israel is found in the baggage, but the redeemed king of Israel is found chasing down a giant. The second thing, what are you running from? Chances are it's the thing you're supposed to be running towards. You know, for us, um, there was a uh, passage in the New Testament in Acts where it's just, there's this massive meltdown going on between the followers. Because Paul, and if you know anything about the New Testament, Paul is this guy who essentially is responsible for two-thirds of the New Testament. And he's this guy, he looks at all of them and he says, hey, I'm called to go to Rome. Now, if you know anything, here's what you have to know about historical significance of Rome as it pertains to Christians, right? Is Rome... It, when, when the emperors were in uh, power, were so oppressive of Christians. And Nero, it was actually written about. Nero was somebody who at night, they, they chronicled things where they found where Nero at night would literally put Christians in trees and light them on fire as a lamp for just his nightly walks. They would skin animals, put them on Christians, and then hunt them as animals because they, didn't, they literally viewed Christians as scum of the earth. And if you want to get super historical, is actually Nero they believed, lit his own city on fire so he could blame Christians and ultimately arouse all of the Roman Empire around him. So Paul looks at the early church and says, hey guys, I'm called to go to Rome. And in going to Rome, literally everybody goes, they're trying to walk him out of it. And it actually says that people were hugging and weeping and grabbing his legs, trying to hold him back because there was certain death associated with it. They're looking and saying, are you an idiot? Nobody in their right mind would ever be called to Rome. If God told you that, he's wrong. And ev nobody is with him. And it actually says in one of the epistles in 2 Timothy, it says that in his heyday in Rome when he's in prison, everybody's deserted him. He's alone and nobody's there. And he's the guy that everybody knows and nobody's in Rome with him. But you know what happens in Rome? Most of the New Testament. You know what happens in Rome? is that he writes the Bible, the New Testament we have today would not exist if Paul wouldn't have went to Rome. See, it didn't make sense what he was running towards, but looking back, it makes a lot of sense now. See, Paul the evangelist and the guy who was really one of the first missionaries in all of the world, 
right? Being imprisoned in Rome, what it didn't make sense. But in God's timing, it did. And today, maybe some of us, God's saying, I want you to run towards something you've been running against. And maybe it's God's timing that we start turning and running towards it. And for some of us, examples of running towards things, maybe that's getting some counseling for something you've never been able to get past. Maybe that's being honest with people and and vulnerable in a place where you can invite somebody in along the journey to help you. Maybe that's us developing new habits, maybe reading new books, doing new things that address our weaknesses. Maybe some of it's stepping out in faith or developing a deeper intimacy with God that helps us to overcome. But we are not created to be people who run from challenges, who run from the hurts, who run from the things that we think we're out of our control or we don't want to associate anymore with. We are people who look and say, in the inner depths of our being, in our brokenness, in our uncertainty, in our, in our emotion, we look and say, God, I have to give this to you. I can't run from it. I can't just will through it. I can't just put my head down and go, I've got to give this to you. And for some of us, maybe that's the best place to start. And the last thing today is this. We can't serve a risen and victorious king with a mind buried in a grave of defeat. I've been really marinating on these words. Uh, So there are seven statements that Jesus gave as he's dying on the cross. Most of us, if I ask you what were Jesus' final words, there would probably be a little bit of a, a split here because what most people believe is, right, it is finished. If you think about that statement, you would think, okay, well, that's gotta be his final words, but it wasn't, right? His final words were, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I I was reading an interesting commentary this week because essentially what it was breaking down was the fact that when he said it is finished, there was actually hours that transpired after that. So what was finished? Because those weren't his, that's the perfect ending if he said it is finished and then into your hands I commit my spirit. But what if he said it is finished, there's a huge long pause of hours and then it's into your hands I commit my spirit. What? was finished and essentially this this commentary which is by one of the a guy that I love his name is Bob Sorge an incredible author he essentially said you know what Jesus was saying in that moment is it is finished sin is finished death is finished defeat is finished condemnation is finished the devil's reign is finished and see a lot of us I want to introduce this thought in my closing moments today is that A lot of us, what we do is when we can't get through something or we're living in a defeated mindset, what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus on the cross who's saying, it is finished, I have victory over it. It is finished, I can resurrect through it. It is finished, I have given you grace to get through it. It is finished, I am with you with my Holy Spirit through it. What we're doing is we're saying it's not enough. It is finished. God is saying over your life, trust me. 
I've purchased a new reality. I've purchased a new way of living. I've purchased a new way of reasoning. I've purchased a new humanity. It is finished. And what we do when we say, you can't take away my past. You can't take away my pain. You can't take away this brokenness. You can't. What we're really doing is we're saying, God, it really isn't finished. I really don't believe that that sacrifice is good enough for this. I don't believe that that sacrifice could get me over this hill. I don't believe that that sacrifice could get me through this valley. I don't believe that that sacrifice was worth what I'm going through and what God is still saying and will continue to say and will say the rest of your life whether you walk back or you walk forward is it's finished. I purchased it and if you'll give it to me and into my hands you'll commit it. I can resurrect something. If we can be people who say, God, with open hands, with open hearts, with an open mind, I trust you and I give it to you. I won't live defeated. I won't live broken. I won't live beat down. I won't live under condemnation. I won't live under a label. I won't live in a stereotype. I won't live in other people's prisons. I declare for you. This is who we're called to be, church. And so what I wanted to do is just read a couple quotes to you guys. The opposite of holy is not evil it's common. Holy means unique and set apart. Common is not evil. Common is just not special. You weren't just created to live this common life. You were created to be set apart. This one from Francis Spafford, we don't have an argument that solves the problems of a cruel world. We only have a story. And that story will always be Jesus, but you're going to need to choose to identify with that story when the world feels cruel and when there are no answers and there is no comfort, it feels like. Don't live defeated. And the last one, God does more behind your back than he ever does in front of your eyes. When we choose to live a life of victory, even when we're feeling defeated, what we're really saying is, God, I trust that what you're doing back here may not line up with what's going on right here, but I believe you got me. 